0: The America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean believes the more time you spend outside together, the better. That's why they've partnered with the National Park Foundation to help you find your park and get there with family and friends. With more than 400 national park sites in the U.S., there are beautiful surprises to be found in every corner of the country. There's probably one closer than you think. Be an outsider with L.L. Bean. Perhaps no city in the United States exceeds Chicago in the number, breadth, intensity, and national importance of labor upheavals. One of our most recent National Park Service sites celebrates and remembers the contributions to American society of an ingenious entrepreneur, but more importantly, the workers who made his dreams happen and their battle for fair pay. I'm Jason Epperson, and today on America's National Parks, the Pullman National Monument. George Mortimer Pullman was born in Brockton, New York, to his mother Emily and father James. When he was young, his family relocated to Albion, New York, along the Erie Canal. Pullman dropped out of school when he was 14 and began working with his father, helping him move houses during the expansion of the canal. As an adult, Pullman sought opportunity in the growing city of Chicago. Built on a bog, Chicago was unable to construct a sewage system without first raising the level of the streets. Using his knowledge of relocating buildings to new foundations, Pullman devised a way to raise Chicago's already built buildings to the new grade level, thus making his early fortune. Pullman's journey to Illinois was carried out on a cramped and uncomfortable cross-country railroad train, an adventure that led him to turn his attention to improving the experience. He saw the need for a rail car that would provide comfortable and elegant accommodations for overnight travelers and began designing his first sleeping car. Here's Abigail Trebu.
1: The first Pullman sleeping car, the Pioneer, was constructed in 1864. Although not an immediate success, the Pioneer received national attention when it was chosen as the car to transport President Lincoln's body from Washington, D.C. to his Springfield, Illinois, resting place. Demand soared, leading Pullman to found the Pullman Palace Car Company in 1867. The Pullman car transformed the experience of passenger railroad travel, setting a new standard. The company produced a variety of cars, including sleeping cars, hotel cars, parlor cars, and dining cars. These were too expensive for railroad companies to purchase outright, so Pullman built his business model around leasing them, along with the employees necessary to serve passengers. Demand for Pullman cars and a growing workforce led Pullman to the development of a place that would attract top workers—a company town with brand-new, modern conveniences walking distance to work. The Pullman Palace Car Company purchased 4,000 acres for its town and factory between Lake Calumet and the Illinois Central Rail Line south of Chicago. Architect Solon Spencer Beeman and landscape architect Nathan Barrett were hired to design the buildings and layout of the town and factories. Groundbreaking occurred in spring of 1880 and work proceeded at a furious pace with over 100 railroad cars of supplies per week unloaded at the town of Pullman over the summer. By fall, factory buildings were taking shape and work began on the first non-industrial building the Hotel Florence. The first factory shops completed were those that would refine the building materials as they came in. A brickyard was built south of the site to supply materials for the first all-brick city. Pullman desired buildings that would be both practical and aesthetically pleasing. So Beeman designed houses in the simple yet elegant Queen Anne style while including Romanesque arches for buildings that housed shops and services. Though he strove to avoid similarity, Beeman instilled the town with visual continuity. Barrett aided the breakup of monotony by designing the curved arcade park in Lake Vista. Housing for workers was separated from the industrial areas and took shape primarily as row houses with streets in front and alleys in the rear for the daily trash collection. Indoor plumbing and relative spaciousness put Pullman's accommodations well above the standards of the day. Though he provided a beautiful, sanitary, and orderly town for workers and their families, George Pullman did not provide these accommodations freely. Believing a person does not value those things for which they do not pay, Pullman charged a rent on his buildings that would ensure a 6% return on the company's investments in building the town.
0: There are variety and freedom on the outside. There are monotony and surveillance on the inside. None of the superior or scientific advantages of the model city will compensate for the restrictions on the freedom of the workman, the denial of opportunities of ownership, the heedless and vexatious parade of authority, and the sense of injustice arising from the well-founded belief that the charges of the company for rent, heat, gas, water, etc., are excessive, if not extortionate. Pullman may appear all glitter and glow, all gladness and glory to the casual visitor, but there is the deep, dark background of discontent, which it would be idle to deny. Chicago Tribune, September 21, 1888.
1: The factories at Pullman attracted thousands of people, the majority of whom were skilled workers, commanding a higher salary than unskilled and Pullman had intended his town to attract and retain these employees. By the fall of 1883, the population of Pullman topped 8,000. Less than half of the residents in 1885 were native-born, most being immigrants from Scandinavia, Germany, England, and Ireland. Not all workers at the Pullman factories lived in the town of Pullman, however. Out of necessity or choice, many moved out to the surrounding neighborhoods that developed— These neighborhoods provided places for single-denomination houses of worship, saloons, and property ownership that were not possible in Pullman. The town attracted visitors, and during the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, visitors from near and far came to marvel at it. Pullman did, however, have its detractors. Labor leaders were mistrustful of the decidedly capitalist scheme, While other capitalists saw it as inviting trouble and doubted it could possibly be as profitable as George Pullman intended, it wasn't. Returns on the town never reached the 6% threshold promised to its investors. When one of the partners in Procter & Gamble approached George Pullman for advice on building a model town for a Cincinnati soap factory, he advised against the idea. As Chicago was on display in 1893 for the World's Columbian Exposition, the grip of financial panic was closing around the country in general, and the railroad industry in particular. Despite the stimulus provided by travelers from around the nation flocking to the fair itself, railroads had become mismanaged and overbuilt. Pullman exhibits in the transportation building at the World's Fair helped spur fairgoers to visit the Pullman neighborhood and most found cause to praise George Pullman's grand experiment. The World's Fair visitors did not see the annoyance of Pullman workers and residents at company paternalism and red tape that festered under the surface. As 1893 wore on, orders at the factory declined, and decreases in wages came without corresponding decreases in rents. Since rents were deducted from paychecks, workers were left with what amounted to starvation wages. Meanwhile, the corporate dividends were undisturbed. Discontent and grievance could remain silent no longer.
0: I believe a rich plunderer like Pullman is a greater felon than a poor thief and it has become no small part of the duty of this organization to strip the mask of hypocrisy from the pretended philanthropist and show him to the world as an oppressor of labor. The paternalism of the Pullman is the same as the interest of a slaveholder in his human chattels. You are striking to avert slavery and degradation." Eugene V. Debs, President of the American Railway Union, May 16th, 1894.
1: The American Railway Union had formed in June 1893 in Chicago, with membership open to all white railroad employees of any profession. While other unions, such as the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen, focused on specific professions, the ARU embraced all related professions, even coal miners, longshoremen, and car builders, if they were an employee of a railroad. Pullman Company employees were eligible since the company owned and operated a few miles of railroad to access its factories. The structure of the union was one that encouraged democracy and settlement of grievances by mediation, recognizing that strikes were best avoided as they were destructive for both employers and employees. Under the leadership of President Eugene V. Debs, the union won some early victories and ranks swelled to 150,000 members. Pullman workers who had formed a grievance committee to negotiate with the company were getting nowhere. And though ARU leadership advised against it, a strike broke out at the Pullman factories on May 11, 1894. The timing was unfortunate since the company could afford to withstand a work stoppage financially by relying on existing leases. Against the might of the Pullman Company, the cause of the workers seemed hopeless. The Pullman Company continued to resist any concessions in negotiation with the strikers trying to wait them out. So the ARU decided to take major action against the Pullman Company on a national scale a boycott of the handling of Pullman cars by all ARU workers. Because Pullman cars were in such wide use, the boycott crippled rail traffic nationwide. Workers across the country had also seen wage reductions and had cause to take action. The size and scope of the ARU was threatening to railroads. In response, the General Managers Association, an industry group representing 24 railroads with terminals in Chicago, organized measures against the boycott. Those who walked off the job were replaced with strikebreakers. And the association tried to sway public opinion against the boycott through methods such as encouraging Pullman cars to be hitched to mail cars to disrupt delivery. The government was uncomfortable with the union's actions part of a growing apprehension about the laboring classes by those in the upper class during a period of economic hardship. An injunction against the boycott was secured on the grounds of the violent nature of the strike and the threat to interstate commerce, citing the Sherman Antitrust Law of 1890, which ironically had been adopted to combat monopoly by big business. Going over the head of Illinois' governor, thousands of U.S. Marshals and U.S. Army troops were deployed in what seemed an oversized response to the disturbance. The Pullman Company strikers' plight had been overshadowed on the national stage by the boycott. Fighting between the military and workers at rail yards in the Chicago area left dozens dead and more wounded. The injunction led to the jailing of key leaders, weakening the ARU and the strike. Debs felt the only way to force the Pullman Company into arbitration was reaching out to other labor groups to join in a general strike. But his efforts did not succeed. The boycott dissolved in mid July and the ARU was defeated. For refusal to obey the injunction, Debs and others in the ARU were indicted for contempt. In late July, President Grover Cleveland appointed a commission to investigate the strike and boycott. Though public sentiment had been against the boycott, George Pullman was roundly criticized for the policies that led to the strike and his refusal to enter into arbitration with his workers. The situation for those in Pullman remained dire, and while little effort was made to evict residents or collect rent, destitution was widespread. In his testimony before the investigative commission, George Pullman defended his model town and his decisions though they had led to a strike that tarnished his image forever. If George Pullman had any doubts about the wisdom of continuing the company town experiment, they were not reflected in his actions. Company ownership and concern with the town's appearance continued under Pullman's direction until his death in 1897. Tons of steel and concrete were placed over his casket to prevent labor radicals from desecrating the grave. The impacts of the Pullman strike were national in scope. As a massive and truly national strike, it demonstrated the power of national labor and forced consideration about labor action and corporate paternalism. Legally, the injunction against the strike affirmed a broad power of the federal government to ensure the free flow of interstate commerce, essentially making national strikes illegal. In October 1898, the Illinois Supreme Court ordered the Pullman Company to sell all non-industrial land holdings. Some holdings, such as the Brickyard, sold quickly. The Illinois Central Railroad had owned the right-of-way past the front of the factory. Lake Vista was filled and new tracks and a road installed. The company was granted a deferment on its deadline to sell most of the town, which mostly changed hands in 1907 with residents given the first option to buy. The Pullman Company, no longer in the landlord business, returned to success under the leadership of its second president, Robert Todd Lincoln, son of President Abraham Lincoln. Union activity returned to Pullman, and just 10 years after the explosive strike in 1904, the company locked out union workers, defeating them easily and without larger incident. In 1900, the company began using metal frames for its cars, and by 1908, the company had converted to all-steel construction. Over five million was invested in remodeling and enlarging the shops. As the company succeeded in the 20th century, the town it once supported floundered. As the housing stock aged and other neighborhoods grew around it, Pullman lost population and its community identity. The 1894 strike was not the last time the Pullman Company would be the epicenter of a contentious labor issue. In the early 20th century, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters strove for recognition of their union, a victory whose impact went beyond Pullman Porters to the African-American society on the whole. Operation of railroads across the country relied on different classes of workers, conductors and engineers in the operating trades, construction and laborers, and service positions like porters, dining car waiters, and station ushers. The classes of railway workers were divided along racial and ethnic lines. African Americans were confined to the service positions. The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters was founded in 1925 in New York City and for four decades was led by A. Philip Randolph. From outside the Pullman Company, he was not affected by their tactics. Porters comprised 44% of the Pullman railcar workforce and Pullman was the nation's largest employer of African-Americans. The union faced tough opposition from a traditionally racist industry, an anti-union corporation, and initially from some in the black community. Many members of the African-American community feared economic reprisals since the Pullman Company offered jobs to African-Americans and advertised in the black press. In 1937, the Pullman Company signed a contract leading to higher salaries, better job security, and increased protection for workers' rights through grievance procedures. It was the first major labor agreement between an African-American union and a corporation. The Pullman Company factories consolidated and downsized through the 1940s, and the railroads discontinued sleeping car service in 1969. Cars and highway travel eclipsed passenger rail for short trips and commercial aviation eclipsed passenger rail for long-distance travel. Although the company split apart and rail travel itself faded from prominence, the Pullman Company and the labor unrest it ignited remains prominent in the American memory of industrial and labor history. The causes of these developments and upheavals can still be seen in the architecture and landscape of Pullman's model town.
0: The Pullman National Monument is a living, breathing neighborhood, and it operates a bit differently than most National Park Service sites. The historic locations are managed by different entities separate from the Park Service. The Shared Visitor Information Center is managed in collaboration with the Historic Pullman Foundation, which offers videos, exhibits, and tour programs. The Pullman State Historic Site, under the Illinois Historic Preservation Agency, preserves the signature Clock Tower Administration Building, the Assembly Shops, and the Grand Four-Story Hotel Florence. The National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porters Museum honors the legacy of A. Philip Randolph, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and contributions made by African Americans to America's labor movement. And the Chicago Park District operates Arcade and Pullman Parks. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, and narrated by Abigail Trebu with much of the text from the National Park Service. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. For more great American destinations, give us a listen on the See America podcast. And if you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family.
1: This land is your land. This land is my land. From California. To the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made for you and me.
0: Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit llbean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.